Okay, welcome back to Hellspan. This is part seven of Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia. In this episode and the following episode, I'll be discussing the broad topic of exercise, the most powerful longevity drug. More than any other tactical domain we discuss, exercise has the greatest power to determine how you will live out the rest of your life. We need more specific guidelines to help us achieve our goals and to do so in a way that is efficient but also safe. But first, we need to spend some time to explore why exercise is so important. Let's start with the cardiovascular and or aerobic fitness. This means how efficiently your body can deliver oxygen to your muscles, how efficiently your muscles can extract that oxygen, enabling you to run, walk, cycle, or swim very long distances. If you've listened to Peter Atia before, you know the importance of VO2 max. VO2 max is perhaps the single most important powerful marker for longevity. VO2 max represents the maximum rate at which a person can utilize oxygen. The more oxygen your body is able to use, the higher your VO2 max is. This number is not just relevant to athletes. It turns out to be highly correlated with longevity. There was a 2018 study that Peter Atiyah mentions here out of JAMA that followed more than 120,000 people and found that the higher their VO2 max, it was associated with a lower mortality across the board. In other words, the fittest people had the lowest mortality rates by a surprising margin. Now that's only the beginning. Someone in the bottom quartile of the VO2 max for their age group, meaning the bottom 25%, is nearly four times likelier to die than someone in the top quartile, and five times more likely to die than a person with who is in the elite level, which is the top 2.3% VO2 max. And this study was very large, 120,000 subjects. Now, the magnitude of the study was very large, and the data was also reproducible across many studies of different populations. And also there was a dose-dependent response, meaning the fitter you are, the longer you live. And the study also showed that there was great biological plausibility to this effect, uh, via the known mechanism of action of exercise on health span and lifespan. And this study was also very strong because it virtually all experimental data on exercise in humans suggests that it can support that exercise and increasing VO2 max supports improved health. So again, there is this huge correlation, possibly even causation between someone's VO2 max and the longevity they live. The strong association between cardiorespiratory fitness and longevity has long been known. It might surprise you, as it did Peter, to learn that muscle may be almost as powerfully correlated with living longer. A 10-year observational study of roughly 4,500 subjects aged 50 and older found that those with low muscle mass were at 40 to 50% greater risk of mortality than controls over the study period. Further analysis revealed that it's not the mere muscle mass that matters, but also the strength of these muscles, their, like their ability to generate force. It's not enough to just build big you know, pecs or biceps in the gym. These muscles also have to be strong. They have to be capable of creating actual force. Subjects with low muscle strength were at double the risk of death, while those with low muscle mass and, and or low muscle strength plus metabolic syndrome had 3 to 3.33 times greater risk of all-cause mortality. So he's definitely throwing out a lot of different studies and showing how there is this great correlation and causation between someone's 
aerobic capacity, the strength, and their actual force to longevity. And exercise is so effective against diseases of aging, the different horsemen that he talks about, that it is often compared to medicine. At a deeper biochemical level, exercise really does act like a drug. More precisely, we know that more, more recently that exercise, you're actually secreting certain cytokines or myokines from your muscles that are sending, sending signals to other parts of your body. These are stuff I've mentioned before, like irisin, myonectin, even BDNF, which helps improve the health and function of your hippocampus, which plays a role in memory. Now, one of the most prime hallmarks of aging is that our physical capacity does erode. Our cardiorespiratory fitness declines for various reasons that begin with like a lower cardiac output, primarily due to reduced maximum heart rate. We lose strength and muscle mass with each passing decade and our bones grow fragile and our joints stiffen and our balance definitely falters, a fact that many men and women discover the hard way by falling and breaking their hip. But both physical activity levels and muscle mass decline steeply after about the age of 65 and then even more steeply about when you get to about 75. It's as if people just kind of fall off a cliff sometimes in their mid-70s. Now really, continued muscle mass and inactivity literally puts our lives at risk. Seniors with the least muscle mass are at greater risk of dying from all-cause mortality. So this is one of the most interesting studies I've read in this book so far. One Chilean study looked at about 1,000 men and 400 women with an average age of 74 at enrollment. The researchers divided the subject into quartiles based on their appendicular lean mass index, and they followed them over time. After 12 years, approximately 50% of those in the lowest quartile were dead, compared to only 20% of those in the highest quartile for lean mass. Now, while we can't establish causality here, the strength and reproducibility of findings like this suggest that it is more than just a correlation. Muscle helps us survive old age. So again, the study was very simple. They took 1,000 men and 400 women, looked at their appendicular lean mass, and followed them over the years. And after the 12 years, again, 50% of those in the lowest quartile were dead, while only 20% of those in the highest quartile were still alive. Again, muscle is important for longevity, and it's important for preventing against you know, these falls that really hospitalize patients and cause them to have a steep decline that we see in their 70s and 80s. Now, if you've listened to Peter before, you know the importance of the centenarian decathlon. So Peter came up with this centenarian decathlon, decathlon, which is a framework he uses to organize his patients' physical aspirations for the later decades of their life, especially the last decade of their life, otherwise known as the marginal decade. You want to think of the centenarian decathlon as the 10 most important physical tasks you will want to be able to do for the rest of your life. He finds it very useful because it helps visualize with great precision exactly what kind of fitness we need to build and maintain as we get older. So he starts by presenting his patients with a long list of physical tasks that might include some of the following. Being able to hike 1.5 miles on a hilly trail, getting up off the floor under your own power, picking up a young child from the floor, carrying two five-pound bags of groceries for five blocks, lifting a 20-pound suitcase over the head compartment in a plane, balancing on one leg for 30 seconds, having sex, opening a jar. These are just some of the examples of something, some sort of task that 
we should be able to do in the last marginal decade of our life. Now, once, he, once he's read this list to his patients, he asked them to select which of these tasks they want to be able to perform in their ninth or even yet 10th decade. And the beauty of the centenarian decathlon is that it is broad yet unique to each individual. And it's not really limited to 10 events. You can make it however many events that you want. So Peter specifically, when he becomes part of the marginal decade or his last decade of life, he really wants to swim half a mile in 20 minutes, walk with a 30-pound dumbbell in each hand for one minute, draw back and fire a 50-pound compound bow, do five pull-ups, dead hang for one minute, climb 90 steps in two minutes, still drive a race car, carry his own luggage, and walk up a steep hill. These are some examples that he wants to do as part of his centenarian decathlon. And again, it's very unique to the individual. So you want to figure out what exactly do you still want to be doing in your last decade of life? One purpose of the centenarian decathlon is in fact to help us redefine what is possible in our later years and wipe away the default assumption that most people will be weak and incapable at that point in their lives. And as centenarian decathletes, we are no longer training for a specific event, but to become a sort of athlete altogether, like an athlete for life. And this moves on to the next chapter, which is training 101, how to really prepare for the centenarian decathlon. Most treatments of exercise are either very specific or overly vague. And they often either emphasize cardio or weights. And in this chapter, we are seeking to optimize our exercise regimen around the principles of longevity. What combination of modalities will help us delay the onset of chronic disease and death while simultaneously maintaining health span for as long as possible? The three dimensions in which we want to optimize our fitness are aerobic endurance and efficiency, like cardio or and then also strength and stability. So cardio, strength, and stability. Those are sort of the three pillars. And all three of these are key to maintaining your health and strength as you age. So we, we begin with the first one, which is cardio or aerobic, or aerobic efficiency. Now, aerobic exercise done in a very specific way improves our ability to utilize glucose and especially fat as fuel. Again, if you've listened to Peter before, you've heard of zone two. Zone 2, he, place, he places a great emphasis on Zone 2, and it is one of the five levels of intensity used by coaches and trainers in endurance sports to structure their athletes' training programs. Typically, Zone walk, you wanna, zone 1, you want to think of as a walk in the park, and Zone 5, 6, or 7 is really an all-out sprint. Zone 2 is more or less the same in all training model, models, going at a speed slow enough that one can still maintain a conversation, but fast enough that the conversation might be a little strained. Zone two training is you know, very essential to her overall health. And he really learned this when he talked to uh, an exercise scientist by the name of Inigo San Milan back in 2018. San Milan, he's a native of Spain and a former pro professional cyclist himself. And he worked with all different kinds of athletes and coaches in many sports, including hundreds of top professional cyclists. Despite his impressive resume, San Milan's true passion is studying the relationship between exercise, mitochondrial health, and diseases such as cancer and type 2 diabetes. In San Milan's view, healthy mitochondria are key to both athletic performance and metabolic health. Our mitochondria can convert both glucose and fatty acids to energy, 
But while glucose can be metabolized in multiple different ways, fatty acids can be converted to energy only in the mitochondria. The healthier and more efficient your mitochondria are, the greater your ability to utilize fat, which is by far the body's most efficient and abundant fuel source. This ability to use both fat and glucose is a term we call metabolic flexibility. A few years ago, San Milan and his colleagues published a fascinating study that helped illustrate this point. They compared three groups of subjects like professional cyclists, moderately active healthy males, and sedentary men who met the criteria for metabolic syndrome. So there was three groups of people. They had each group ride a stationary bike at a given level of intensity relative to their fitness. While the scientists analyzed the amount of oxygen they consumed and the CO2 they exhaled in order to determine how efficiently they produced power and what their primary fuel sources were, like which fuel source they were using, the professional cyclists could zoom along producing huge amounts of power while still burning primarily fat. But the subjects with metabolic syndrome relied almost entirely on glucose for their fuel source, even from the first pedal stroke. They had virtually zero ability to tap into their fat stores, meaning they were metabolically inflexible and they were able to use glucose, but not fat. So again, we want improvement in mitochondrial health to allow for this metabolic flexibility to use both glucose and fats as, our, as fuel sources. This again is why zone two is so important. Mitochondrial health becomes especially important as we grow older because one of the most significant hallmarks of aging is a decline in the number and quality of our mitochondria. mitochondria. So the quality and quantity of our mitochondria start to decline as we get older. And again, this is a major hallmark of aging. The good news is that mitochondria are extremely plastic. And when we do aerobic exercise, it stimulates the creation of many new and more efficient mitochondria through a process called mitochondrial biogenesis. While at the same time, we're able to eliminate the mitochondria that are not functioning anymore through a process called mitophagy. A person who exercises frequently in zone two is improving their mitochondria with every run, swim, or bike ride. But if you don't use them, you lose them. This is another reason why Zone 2 is such a powerful mediator of metabolic health and glucose homeostasis. Muscle is the largest glycogen storage sink in the body, and as we create more mitochondria, we greatly increase our capacity for disposing of that stored fuel rather than having it end up as fat or remaining in our blood. Studies have found that while we are exercising, our overall glucose uptake increases as much as 100-fold compared to when we are at rest. What's interesting is that glucose uptake can occur via multiple mechanisms. So glucose, when it's floating around in the bloodstream, it needs to be used for energy. It gets taken up into the cell, and it can be taken up into the cell through an insulin-mediated mechanism and also through a non-insulin glucose uptake mechanism. So we all know the process of insulin binding to the insulin receptor, causing autophosphorylation, then causing some downstream AKT, PI3 kinase, allowing for the glucose transported to go up to the surface and take in the glucose. But we also know that there is a non-insulin-mediated glucose uptake mechanism where glucose is transported directly across the cell membrane without insulin being involved at all. This in turn explains why exercise, especially zone 2, can be so effective in managing both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. It really enables our body to essentially bypass insulin resistance in the muscles to draw blood glucose 
to draw down our blood glucose levels. And he has one patient he uses as an, as an example with type 1 diabetes, meaning he produces zero insulin. And he keeps his glucose in check almost entirely by walking for 6 to 10 miles every day and sometimes even more. As he walks, his muscle cells are vacuuming glucose into his bloodstream via a non-insulin-mediated glucose uptake. He still needs to inject himself with insulin, but only a tiny fraction of the amount that he would otherwise require. So again, it's extremely important to get this zone 2 in. Four times a week, he'll spend about an hour riding his stationary bike at about the zone 2 threshold. So he definitely does a lot of zone 2. He thinks of zone 2 as akin to building a foundation for a house. Most people will never see it, but it is nevertheless important work that helps support virtually everything else we do in our exercise regimen and in our lives. So if there's one thing you learn from this episode, it's to start the zone 2 training. Again, it's the type of aerobic exercise where you're walking at a brisk pace, able to keep a conversation, and you're not going too slow where you're not pushing yourself, but you're also not going past zone two where you are struggling to maintain that conversation with a person. So I'm going to end the, the podcast here. And in the following podcast, I will do more talk on VO2 max, strength, stability, and further talk about exercise. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you tune in next time and thank you for listening.